Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. podcast world it's the three questions with andy richter and um i'm friendly with most of the people that come on this show i mean some of them i don't know very well but i i don't know that there's been anyone that's like an absolute stranger that's been on but this is uh, i'm actually talking to somebody who's a very dear friend of mine today and whom i've known i feel like since birth Mm-hmm. Matt Besser. Comedy birth. Hey, man. How yeah, are you? I was listening to Scott Thompson's episode, and you called him an old friend. I'm like, oh, I'm way older than yeah, that Yeah, yeah, you are. You are. You're like, no, really. You are. You and I knew each other before we were even slightly grown-ups. Like, we, I think we were still kind of like kids, I would think. Well, I think we're about the same age. Yeah, I'm 52. What are you? I'm 52. Yeah. It's funny because when I when – I, you were born in Chicago or raised there, and I moved there, and you were already part of the whole improv scene when I moved there. Yeah. And to me, you were like an elder, and I treated you like you were 10 years older, and you'd been around forever. And people tend to do that, even when you're like, even when they are only a year more in experience. Right. It's like... No, you were I was, like you were like an elder to me. I was for like a, while. a sophomore or a junior in improv terms, and you were a freshman. That yeah, kind of like and yeah. But you know what? You seemed more like a senior though, because oh, really? it was such a small scene at that point. See, I didn't feel like a senior. I felt like there were other people that were like. But when more. you're a freshman, you don't know. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's older right, than you. Right. Oh, I know. And it's also it's also funny to be like. They were the guys that like, oh, that guy's been around a long time when you first start out. And then and then you sort of see him perform a few times and you're like, yeah, and he's not very good. <laughs> you know, there was like a few of those that I was always like, it. you know, it is true. You come into this new thing and you think, and I had been through the same thing in film school. Like I'd come and started film school in Chicago and felt very, like I knew nothing and mm-hmm. I was very self-conscious and very naive and innocent and then you just kind of figure out oh no 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 we're all nobody knows nobody anything. knows anything nobody i mean that's and that's it carries on through life too you know there was so much uh am i jumping into the no no where, yeah, where it's, this it's, is yeah, where whatever. i come from right yeah that's yeah but no question. whatever uh I, the questions don't matter they don't oh really i thought there was a right answer and i've been gimmick, really working on it it's just a way for me to just ask people personal questions. You don't score us at the end and tell us if we win. No, no. I just ask personal questions, and then I hide my erection <laughs> from hearing the answers. <laughs> well, I could talk a lot about you, so I'll give you extra hard. Oh! 
But as you know, it was such a small scene. Think yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think we were so lucky that it was so small. We were so fortunate because it'll that improv scene will never be that way again. Yeah, yeah. Well, improv in general will never be. It was still kind of a weird little niche thing yeah. that you had to explain to people. Without, and, without like, question. We're just, yeah, we're making this up. And they'd be like, no, you're not. Well, I want to ask you, since you were from Chicago, did you grow up knowing what comedy improvisation meant? No. When no. did you first know? When you I must got, have gone to Second City. I never went to Second City until I was, that was not, A, I grew up. 60 miles, 50 miles west of Chicago, which might as well have been 200 miles okay. west of Chicago. We went to the we went to Bears games, Cubs games, the occasional White Sox games, because uh-huh. for us, White Sox games were, the South Side was scary. <laughs> it's all just white fear. It was all just like rural white fear controlled everything. Uh-huh. And like, and also the notion of going to concerts, like we, when my brother and I started going to concerts, and we started, my brother's three years older, but we started doing that together because my brother had a terrible sense of direction and needed me to navigate. Like he got a, <laughs> when he got a driver's license at age 16, I was 13. He didn't know how to get to like my stepdad's plumbing shop where he'd been going, you know, for like five years of his life, or he didn't know how to get to the mall. That's nuts. It's crazy. And I i mean, at the time, I thought it was crazy. So he'd have to take me with him to remind him how to get to the mall, which he has that. My dad has that same You're absolute GPS, absolute lack of direction. My dad had my dad's a brilliant, incredible, one of the smartest people I've ever known, but just, he can't find his way around. Like he just gets lost constantly. But uh, so I overestimate your knowledge. Oh, of, absolutely. Uh, when we started going to see concerts. When we were like, I was 16, maybe he was 19. It was, you know, going to the Aragon Ballroom, terrifying, like absolutely terrifying to us. And, you know, and then you get used to it. It's like, oh, this is no big deal. You just find parking, you go to the shows. And especially because the. I'm surprised the same way, though, you probably went to the aquarium at some point. Yes. You weren't taken to Second City because it's such a staple of Chicago. No, 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 not. I was aware that there was Second City. I was aware that. John Belushi was from Chicago. I was aware that Cheeseburger Cheeseburger <laughs> was a was a Greek diner in Chicago, but ah. that but it it was still a mystery to us. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that almost gives me comfort to yeah. know that you like because in Little Rock, where I'm from, I certainly felt isolated from that. And, yeah, and I wasn't even getting to go to the Aragon Ballroom on occasion. Yeah. But anyway, I didn't know improv at all until I came there. I came to Chicago for stand up, which was booming. Yeah. In the early uh, Yeah, I remember seeing you do stand up. Yeah. I think that was like one of the yeah. You were you and McCann were t- about the only people that I knew that did both. Yeah. And uh and I would sometimes go, <laughs> sometimes I would sometimes go with you and or with McCann to like stand up parties. And there was a very much a difference between Whoa, improv totally and stand up. And man, I was like, man, improv parties are loud and fun. Kind of weirdly competitive, and stand-up parties are sad, and like everyone kind of like quietly off in their own thing. And I'm like, it occurred to me, oh yeah, they don't play with others. Like everybody's their Dude, own little let me self-contained tell you deal. My first improv party. So 
it must have been after one of the first times I saw Harold, period. And I just must have glommed on and said, uh, there's a party. I'm going to yeah. go to it. And for people that don't know, Harold, w- Matt and I are both students of Del Close. Harold was his long-form improv game. It was just – it basically – it was a group game with that involved scenes and games, and it all was supposed to kind of wrap up at the end, basically. And I'd say at this point, the entire improv scene was probably 60 to 100 people at best. Probably. Right? Yeah, I would think so. And, you, and, you, and once you were in it for three months, you kind of felt like you knew everybody. M- yeah. I mean, there were, there were people at Second City who were actually making $600 a week at it, which uh-huh. was which was astounding and, and mind-boggling. And you kind of would get to know them. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but no, in terms of like the, the regular plebes of improv, yeah. So I went to this house party, and the best group at the time was uh, Blue Velveeta, mm-hmm. and they were indeed amazing. And... Uh, Terrible name. But yeah. Good that, group. That, they were like one of the last pun name groups. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, a really great group. Jay Leggett, uh, who passed away a few years ago, but uh, big personality, really funny guy, uh, could be a bit of a stage hog, uh, but uh, could definitely just rule the stage and rule a room mm-hmm. if he wanted to. And then uh, Noah... Of course. Noah Gregoropoulos. Who uh, wasn't on a classic team at that point that I remember as much. He has been on some, but at that point, I, don't, I, I can't remember that. But was like, next to Dell was like a general of the theater. Yeah. And he also was a had, teacher. Yeah, and also ha- ha- has this razor sharp, sardonic, dry wit. Yeah. Which he could use to, to, to cut... Uh, a friend or a stranger to the core, and mm-hmm. I delighted in watching him. But that night, I didn't know either one of them. They were just two huge guys, and they're both really big guys. And when I entered the party, everyone was gathered around, peeking into a small bedroom, smaller than the studio we're in. Like, everyone was looking in the door, and those two guys were on a mattress that was on the floor, uh, facing each other and all both red-faced and sweaty with beers in their hand, taking turns, insulting each other. And it was just a snap battle. But And I didn't know either one of them, so I didn't even know the personality that they were yeah, yeah. snapping on at that point. Right. But I could tell it was so ruthless and hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And the whole house was watching it, and these both these guys were clearly really funny. Yeah, and it was all done in in good humor. Obviously, wasn't a fight, right? Um, but it's still, the whole point of that is to say the worst fucking thing. Yeah, like to push the button. Yeah, or the buttons. Yeah, yeah. and it That's, was King of the Mountain too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it was very fratty in in maybe a negative yeah. way too. But still, it was exciting. And mm-hmm. uh, people don't. And people will hear that and think, "Wow, that is mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Like, what a sick thing to do to each other. And what a sick thing to revel in. What a sick <laughs> thing to to crowd around a bedroom door to watch." And they're not wrong. But it also, in your young mind, wanting ser- being serious about doing this thing, not even realizing how serious you are about this thing, it is truly thrilling, truly I, exciting. I, I, I felt I had found my crowd for this reason. I've been around parties where we're all 
chugging a beer and we're all looking into a room or whatever. Right. Or it's beer pong. Or right, right. Or two guys are wrestling or they're literally fighting and angry and we're yeah, all yeah. hooting and hollering. Right. Or some dude's taking his clothes off. That's not quite my crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I was there. I've been at that party in college and high school. But then I found a crowd where, oh, we're all being funny. Yeah. Like, that's where the all that energy is coming out. Yeah, and it's not just one person being funny and everyone's yes, standing the whole around. crowd. It's everybody can fucking add to it. It's like you're not just, you know— it, it's a it's a kitchen. It's not just one guy cooking. It's a kitchen full of talented chefs making a lot of fun. And and it was, I at the same time because I went to film school and this was like very shortly after film school. And I would have mixed parties of film school friends and improv friends. And my film school, like you know, are we talking Columbia? Yeah, Columbia College. And you know, it'd be like my film school friends. You know, kind of gothy, you know, look, you know, a few of them are kind of gothy and a few of them are kind of just like young, sensitive artist types. And they would just be sitting over in a corner miserable while like a bunch of guys in Bears jerseys are screaming at the top of their lungs. And I'm enjoying the screen and they're saying funny, funny shit, but it is like really fucking loud. And the, my film school friends would be like, why? so loud <laughs> and I have to be like well, it's cause you kinda gotta be that's sort of like part of the joy of it is being loud sorry you know? yeah the doing the the bit and the bits never stopping yeah is uh will really separate a crowd like yeah who's enjoying that and who's like I cannot fucking deal with yeah, that yeah. and at that point in my 20s that's all I wanted to do I yeah. just wanted the bit to go all night long. There also was a lot of, uh, I think a lot of it, <laughs> there was a lot of mushrooms and acid and ecstasy and stuff. And I think that that was, uh, you know, that's as a parent, I I, don't, I doubt my kids are listening to this. Maybe they will someday. But, uh, but like, I couldn't, like if my kids said to me, you know, of course when they're like 18, but like, you know, should I do mushrooms? I couldn't tell them no, don't. Oh, at eighteen, yeah, yeah. I'd be like, yeah, That's you exactly probably when I you did probably it. should. You know, like it's. I found them to be really useful and really fucking I awesome. About, and showed me like I. I just remember there I might being direct parties. them where to do it. Right, right, of course, <laughs> yeah. But but I just remember there being parties where there was something involved. <laughs> Some kind of substance involved, and they were like, it, "We're not talking. There's no heroin. There's no cocaine. There's. It's just. Oh, there. I never did cocaine. There was some cocaine. Was there? I never was around the cocaine. I don't. It, it was just more people tripping. Yeah. And and I just remember there being parties where I was being funny in a way that I didn't even know I could be funny. There was stuff coming out of my mouth yeah. that like was like, you know, standing, screaming in my underwear and being like, wow, who's this person that's in me yelling this stuff? And, you know. Shrooms can do that to yeah, an artist. Yeah. It can open up your mind and like for, you know, yeah. that's Jimi Hendrix or uh, a comedian. Yeah. It can flow sometimes. I, I definitely remember that too. I have vivid memories of that. We used to party... At the Annoyance Theater had this uh, theater that was right on Broadway, uh, and 
you could get up on the roof of it and the yeah. parties would be up on the roof and you could overlook the whole street. It was such a good time. And I remember, I think it was like an ecstasy party or shroom party, doesn't matter. And everybody was uh, going, cr- once again, I was the freshman. In the, yeah, this yeah. is a very freshman story. Yeah. And because uh, I wanted to fit in, and because you're used to, that's the other thing. We're all class clowns. We all were the funniest person in our high school. Yeah. And now we're all together and it's like, oh no, now I got to amp up my game to yeah. have people pay attention to yeah, me, especially yeah. when I'm the freshman. Right. So I remember this party, I believe it was, yeah, it was Howard's birthday and, uh, and there was a cake and someone had already taken a piece out and he had eaten it. We were past that. And the cake was still sitting there. It was like an hour later and everybody was going nuts. People were throwing beer around and yeah. throwing water balloons off the roof and shit. And I got the cake and I'm like, this is going to be funny. <laughs> and uh, I, I smashed it into uh, Howard's face and I'm the freshman. Yeah. And he's the most high status guy at the theater. Yeah, he kind of... He actually was salaried at the theater. I yeah, think. and uh, and it's his birthday. I've barely done probably six shows at this point, but I'm you know I'm a funny guy. I'm, I'm a crazy party guy. So I smashed the cake. And there's the knife still in the cake. I didn't oh! see it. That he, this big old sharp knife that they used to cut the cake oh! with. <laughs> I smashed it to his face. It doesn't cut him, but the you know the knife like. Clank and and I remember uh, I think it was his wife started yelling at me. Someone started yelling at me and it stopped the whole party. Like you just smashed a cake with a knife into his face. <laughs> it was such a freshman moment. I was just trying to be funny. Yeah. I just want to fit in. We were all being crazy. Yeah. And I just thought a cake in the face. Yeah. Well, you guys too. <laughs> I at the time. Yes. It was you, Horatio, Horatio Sands, Adam McKay, Rick Roman. Rick Roman, who who passed away tragically. Very funny guy. Rick Roman was uh kind of new to the scene and had a very kind of Andy Kaufmanish vibe to him. Yes. I would say he made Andy Kaufman look tame. Because I've never heard stories of Andy Kaufman in real life. Yeah, yeah. Like pissing people off, yeah. like Rick. Like Rick's, the world was his stage. Like earlier, when you're talking about uh, drugs and Columbia, a story that popped in my mind is I went to a. And the reason I said, "Oh, there was coke around," I went to a Columbia party, Columbia College, college Chicago. party, and there was coke, and it was one of those things where coke is in the one room, and everybody files into the room and comes out, and no one, not everybody's invited. Yeah, and we were definitely not invited in the coke room, and yeah, we were yeah. just drunk, yeah. and being assholes. And Rick was going around touching people's hair, and and like brushing it like a dog, and and uh, and then walking away, and it would piss. And we and we were going up to them saying, "Oh, don't worry about our friend; he's on super cool, and he's <laughs> which is a made up drug." Right, right. And uh, eventually this guy wanted to kick his ass, and it was one of those, the whole party stops and the room clears for these guys to fight. And Rick is all wide-eyed, acting like he's on some crazy drug. Yeah. And he's just right, drinking beer. around. Yeah, yeah. 
And we had to talk the guy into it like it was a weird acid trip. Sorry, dude. Is this like this is when like special K and shit is floating around? We're yeah. like, it's this new drug called Super Cool, and he doesn't know what he's doing. And don't yeah, kick yeah. his ass. So you guys that you guys represented that kind of energy, which is a pranking kind mm-hmm. of energy. And you would come to parties, and I and to me it always seemed like because you guys were sort of still like the freshmen, yeah, like Adam McKay who's got one of the biggest brains in the world was still, he was in the same kind of boat where he was coming from, I believe Pittsburgh or Philly. Yeah. Coming from Philly had done comedy, but like, is this new guy starting to do stuff and very ambitious, very brilliant, obviously, but, (laughs) but also kind of like you got all these guys, you know, all these different Mike's and Jeff's in (laughs) hockey jerseys, you know? Uh, And, and there, and it's a very specific Chicago comedy guy kind of thing. And and but the, and those guys don't prank like there was no there's pranking. a fight story yeah you remember this I yeah and that's why I say like you guys would come to these parties and I just sort of I don't know I just I thought you guys were funny I, the pranking <laughs> shit was always like oh it makes me so nervous I'm terrible at pranking like I did they had me do cranky anchors once I was terrible at it because uh-huh. I just identify with the poor person that I'm supposed right. to be pranking and end up going like I'm so sorry goodbye and hang up you know. Um, but you guys would come to these parties and I liked you guys and I would hang out and talk to you guys and it'd be funny, but you guys were like, you did have this very combative group ethos. It was always like, Hey man, you want to go? And you guys would sit around with each other talking about fighting, (laughs) never fighting, but just like talking about fighting and what kind of fighting you would do. And I just like, and I remember like, I don't remember that. Huh? You guys would do that all the time. You'd be like, I'd be ready to but go. Are you ready to go? Uh, yeah. And I and I would and I just remember like one time sitting with you guys and just being like, This is all right, it's kind of funny, but it's really boring, guys. Like, come on, there's so much better things to talk about than fighting. But it would carry Talking over. About fighting. I you don't would, remember that. You would do that. You guys would sit around and you would talk about like I would have your back if, you know, if like, it was just part well, of the whole thing of like. Here's a story. Because there were like guys, there were guys uh, from my, from the Chicago improv group who I remember being at parties being like, we should go over there and, ca-, and whether it was you or Adam McKay or Horatio, you'd done something. No, here, here's one. You'd like so it was, uh, broken an a lamp or something or I don't know. It was an annoyance anniversary of a uh, co-ed. Uh-huh. Coed Prison Slots, which is a long, one of the longest running original shows in Chicago, possibly still running. I don't even know. Probably, and it was very special as it should have been. Event for the, that theater, the Annoyance Theater. It was like the flagship show yeah. of that theater. A very funny show. Yeah, and uh, it was some kind of anniversary for it. So they had bought a big layout of food, and I remember there was like shrimp and oysters, and that. Is not usual. No, that's that's like spreads yeah, for us at that time. That's jaw droppingly expensive. Yeah, for us where a time. hot dog at that point yeah. would have been amazing. Yeah, so yeah. when there was oysters, yeah. So anyway, they're doing the 25th anniversary, and they're doing a special show, and everyone's on the theater is up in the theater. We walk in late. There's not enough room for us to see the show, so we go down to where all the food is. <laughs> We start eating food. Oh, I do. While the, I, this, while the, I, this is I'm I'm remembering while yeah. the show is still going on. Yeah. Okay, and you guys ate everything, right? I don't know about that, but we're definitely getting into the shrimp yeah, yeah, and oysters. Yeah. 
So, and we're last on the yeah. guest list, if at all. I think, <laughs> I think, I, I think I was the only one invited, and I think I brought that whole crew. Right. You brought your hillbilly friends, yeah, and they were, and none of them were invited. And Rick was putting, was wrapping, <laughs> was wrapping shrimp and oysters and napkins and sticking in his pocket for later. <laughs> <laughs> Beyond just eating, like, I'm going to take the other stuff for home later. Yeah. So uh, so then the show ends, and everyone comes down there and sees us little rats down there. Us little fucking wet rats eating all the shrimp and oysters and shit. And uh, I, I, you can guess who yeah. uh, said... Uh, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Yeah. And I think it came down to uh, Horatio and Mike. And I was in the middle, and it was going to be a fight. Yes. And it, and it had cleared out, and it was in the front lobby, and it, was, and, it, and it was like, we're sick of you motherfuckers coming in here. And then I got called out as sitting on the fence. Besser, <laughs> I'll never forget this. Besser, you're talking out of two. No, you're you're talking out of two sides of your mouth because I wouldn't choose because I did annoyance shows and I did. Right. Uh, and were you dating somebody at the time? I probably was yeah, yeah. dating Susan. Maybe I think so. Yeah, point? yeah. I think I think so. Yeah. So I was between gangs and yes. like I was like, come on, everybody, we're just trying to have a good time. Yeah, yeah. We're just filling our pockets with oysters. <laughs> who who among us? <laughs> So yeah, that that I'll always laugh at that one of the two theater yeah. comedy crowds in such a small scene. Yes, yes, uh, and also and it's blows. not. And also, too, one aspect of the story is that the person that was on the side of the house wanting to fight Horatio is a formidable, oh, formidable fighter. Yeah, the biggest guy in the scene, the biggest guy in the, and and also well versed. In fisticuffs, so yeah, uh, it was. It, yeah, it was not like just some. It was going to be some tussle, you know. It could have been. Ugly. There were fights out on the softball fields yep. that I remember. Yep, absolutely. Theaters. There uh, was a lot. There were a few people that had anger issues in those days. Uh, you know, in- including myself up till uh, now. But I was. It, I was including you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know that that's maybe the story of my life, but yeah, I it, remember it, at one point asking, saying something to you. I I mentioned something about that I've never been in a physical fight in my life, and you said like, "Oh my god, I've got punched a thousand times," <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, yeah, I can see that. I can see I can see Matt Besser throughout time not being able to not, not being able to hold it in and getting smacked." Uh, I don't think I've ever hit anyone first, Especially except for maybe Arkansas, except for maybe Pete Holmey. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great fight. <laughs> well, down here I brought it up, Arkansas. You're from fucking Arkansas. Yeah, man. You're you're an Arkansas Jew. I know. That's crazy. That's very uh. That's formative. Yeah. For my dad, even more so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And your mom, I, I, there's all kinds of crazy stuff about your mom being ostracized for marrying a Jewish Yeah, guy. she was Christian and came from the, you know, Harrison, which is up in the Ozark, very, still very conservative yeah. place. 
And she married my dad, who was Jewish, and that did not sit well with my grandparents, and they pretty much disowned him. They were at the wedding. I wish I had this on film. My grandmother crying at the wedding, but usually people are crying with joy, and her crying with just straight-up grief. Grief over, yeah. <laughs> Loudly. Oh, it's crazy. After the wedding was over, uh, uh, my grandfather took my mother's uh, car from her that he had given her. Wow. In the parking lot outside. In the parking lot of the wedding. Yeah. So oh, give my me your God. Car keys. Oh, people are great. I now, know. was your dad was your, was your dad from Little Rock originally? Were, were his people from Arkansas? It's interesting because I'm about to do a, a show in St. Louis, which I've never done before. But that's where my where all the Jews we we came from the Ukraine into Iowa briefly, and then into St. Louis for a while, mm-hmm. the Besser clan, and uh, and they went and they had business that went back and forth between. Little Rock and St. Louis. There was a lot of, uh, well, we're opening up a clothing store in Little Rock. You can go uh, work for my uncle down there. Yeah. And now there's a jewelry shop up in St. Louis. So there's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was born in St. Louis, but mostly raised in Little Rock. In Little Rock. Mm-hmm. And, and what did your dad do for a living? He was an investment banker. An investment banker. Yeah. yeah. And did your mom have a job? or would No. You? Yeah. She didn't. And you have a one brother, right? An yeah. older brother? A younger brother. A younger brother. Yeah, he lives yeah, in yeah. Uh, Boulder now. But uh, yeah, not many moms had jobs back then. No, it's funny I, yeah. you even asked that. No, I'm I like, know. I can't, is... I can't even think of a mom who did have a job in Little yeah. Rock. Well, my mom ended up having a in job, but it was heart. sort of out of necessity, and it was like an offshoot of my stepfather's business. So, uh, But yeah, I don't even... Aside from a couple of teacher moms or librarian mom, you know, like the mm-hmm. librarian, I knew her kids. But other than that, yeah, you're right. I didn't know. I, I say that obviously jobs. from a place of upper middle class privilege, but that was yeah. my neighborhood. And that's right, who I right. Knew. Exactly. So I, most of the mothers. And what was it like? I mean, growing up, what were you, were, you know, a funny kid? Did you It's funny because I was, well I was funny to other kids, uh, but never – to adults, I was so shy to like anyone not my friends. Yeah. So I think I was very funny to my friends because yeah, I was yeah. comfortable. Um, but like when I finally got into comedy, it so shocked my parents and my brother and people who weren't, fr- they're were like, that kid who just is so introverted. And- yeah. But I was, but in my, but in the class, that'd be, I was the class clown. So yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's kind of typical story that way. Was it, uh, when when was it that you started? Was it college that you started to do comedy? So I, that's what I was saying about you are interested when you were saying that Second City was just a whole un, a other universe that you weren't aware of. Because, you know, we're talking – being from a pre-internet uh, coming of age is such a different story. And I almost yeah. wonder if our brains are going to look different. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, be, I know, because, I know. Because growing up in Little Rock – I really, I think if you had asked 12-year-old Matt Besser, like, how do you become an actor? I would have said, well, you have to be born to actor parents in Hollywood. Yeah. And that was my viewpoint. How yeah. do you become a rock and roll star? Uh, rock and roll parents in New York. Like, I, I, right. And I thought I was going to be an investment banker like my dad. Yeah. 
And oh, maybe in in high school, I'm going crazy. Now I'm thinking about going into advertising. That's how nuts I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to college and the whole fucking world opens up. Right. And it did. College, yeah. my whole world opened up. Yeah. And I didn't really think about anything outside and you had, of a- You had the chance to play soccer in college, right? Didn't you? <laughs> I, I don't know. I saw that. In, like they do research. Is that true? I guess it's not true. It is true, but in a funny way. Because once again, pre-internet, if you're You recruiting, didn't play soccer and you lied? <laughs> I did play soccer, but pre-internet, there's no YouTube clips. There's no, how do you tell a coach how good you are? And how do you know how good you are? Yeah. What are you comparing yourself to? Yeah, yeah. I played soccer in the 80s. You know that. Barely anyone played soccer at that yeah. point. How would I know to compare myself to a 15-year-old from Philadelphia? Yeah, yeah. I, we couldn't. I went to state in Arkansas, uh, the state championship. My my high school team was uh, uh, one or two the entire time I was there. Yeah. I started every year. Well, and also, I felt I was great. For you, I mean, I don't know if people realize. For in that, what year are we talking? 88, 85, 84? Yes, 85. I graduated in 85. 85. So for there to be a high school in Arkansas that had a soccer team means it is the richest high school in Arkansas, probably. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or definitely one of very few. So what we're talking about. Because there is, in Little Rock especially, there is a, a, a fancy class of people. You know, yeah. like there is definitely like a kind of old Southern aristocracy in sure. in Little Rock. Yeah. So you are coming from like <laughs> the best soccer player in Arkansas is kind of a very I, rarefied air. And I didn't even think I was the best. I just thought, I, but I was also going to a small school. I was going to Division Three, and I thought, well, like, hey, for Division Three, I'm fucking going to be awesome. Yeah. So when I'm going around doing the schools, I'm having the coaches – Walk me around the facilities like I'm good. They don't know I'm not good. And I don't know I'm, I'm average. Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious in retrospect because they were treating me like a star. Yeah. These are our fields. and Because you were on the team that won. Well, were you one of the best te- players on your team, do you think? Well, I wasn't even the top five on my team. But oh, in wow. My, but in my mind, the top five were going to go to a, a Nebraska right. or a real college yeah, and be yeah. great. Yeah. And I felt like, oh, I'm going to like Ivy League type school. I'm yeah. going to Amherst, this very small school. So I felt like I'm going to be great there. Yeah. But I get there and the real athletes were playing with muscular bodies were playing. <laughs> I tell this story, but like I was on the same floor as them, same dorm. And some dude was like, let's go down, the, like the first day, let's go down the fields and play soccer. And I'm like, great. And in my mind, here we go. I'm about to show off and get my first feather in my cap at how great I am at soccer. I'm about to find my people. And I go down there and I'm like, why are all these uh, football and rugby players running down here with us? And why aren't there any skinny guys? And I realized they're all soccer players and they check you and they... Meaning they fucking use yeah, the sure. no, physical with yeah, you. Yeah, they knock the shit out of you. And I'm like, ah, oh, I've never even played like this before. And we're right. playing pickup soccer. I cannot hang with these guys. Wow. So it's funny. I got recruited in Amherst for soccer. 
And did you play or did you, did you I get played cut? JV and sat at the bench and then yeah. I started getting high and played intramural. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is I was one of the best in intramural. It's like I found my level. You, right, you right. always find your level. You were you got, still got to be the best. Yeah. You, well, you know what? Everyone should find that level. Yeah, no Why shit. not? And Why whatever not? Yeah, you yeah, do. Yeah. So did you, and is that when you started, to, you like, did you, was it stand up that you started to do? And I mean, and I have a weird story that way. Yeah. Uh, Cause but, how uh, do you get the nerve to do that? Like that's stand up. I, I, I hear these people say, friends dared me too. And I just am always like, ah, it was almost like I needed that. improv. I needed other people on stage. I did radio first. So uh-huh. I did a punk show and then doing the punk show, I'd just get drunk on mad dog. It'd be like, and start being funny and have people call in and think I'm funny. Yeah. And that kind of gave me the bug. Oh, people think I'm funny. And I'm have a, I think we literally had a 30 mile radius. Yeah. It's like people in Heath, Vermont (laughs) can uh, hear me. And uh, And they are very selective. But it would always be like, hey, uh, it's Mike from Heath. Hey, Mike from Heath. Uh, And I have a fan. And then yeah. you kind of are hooked. You're like, I have fans. And Mike would call back every yeah. other week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and go do the anchovy bit again. And I'm like, oh, they like my prank calls. So now I'm like hooked. But stand up, there was a contest. We have a mutual friend, Eric Zicklin. He yeah. was my roommate or one of my best friends in college. And he was uh, very writerly funny. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he's a successful comedy writer out here today. Today, yeah. even today, yeah. But at that point, he was no. He like wrote in the newspaper, and he like did the senior speech. So he was known for being funny that way. Yeah. I was still just. I only had my radio show, so yeah. that's how I was funny. He heard about this contest at UMass, which was like a stone throw away. If you win, you go to Jamaica. I think it was sponsored by. <laughs> It was like Cool Ranch Doritos and uh, Sticklets Gum, I think was the sponsor. And uh, at UMass. And we, I know I'd never done stand-up. I think he might have done it once or twice in Northampton. But we both did this contest. We show up. The audience is like two to 3,000 people. Yeah. It's like one of those big college rooms. This is my first time going on stage. Usually you go on an open mic yeah, with yeah. five with other a few comedians. Drunks, yeah. And uh, so it's packed with UMass students. The host, I won't say the host's name yet. So the, the host uh, was a funny guy from LA and, uh, and he was doing material. He was definitely a notch above us and yeah. doing material between us. Um, I went up. I was so nervous that I was stuttering. Uh, 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 Captain Kirk, uh, three-breasted. I couldn't get the fucking microphone out of the mic stand, which is such a classic first-timer thing. Yeah. So I was stuttering and trying to get the microphone out, and I was killing because people thought I was doing a character. Oh, wow. They thought I was doing like Bobcat. Yeah. <laughs> and it was that whole nervous energy thing. And then I just kind of went with it and just kind of just cranked it up and just, yeah. I was just loud and energy. And I had this script and material in my head and I was kind of just skipping around. It was almost kind of like 
probably sounded like freeform poetry right. of uh, punchlines <laughs> without setups. Like I, I never, not, but I have so much energy. It seems like confidence. And yeah. I think it, that's why it killed. That's, that's what I'm going to chalk it up to. But I did the best. Eric did the second best. Yeah. And there was like 12 people there. I read that there were a, review, a review came out in the UMass uh, paper that gave us both a good review. Then I was hooked. I'm like, uh, now I'm getting compliments from the press. I'm hooked. Right, right. You saw your name in the paper. Yeah. Zicklin sent me that uh, review like years later, like 10, 15 years later. The host that night, his name was misspelled in the review. It said, uh, Judd Apatow. <laughs> Did too much time in his in between sets. It was a little crit. It was critical of how much time he did his MC. <laughs> and I was like, "Holy shit, Judd Apatow did my fucking." And I, I told, I, I sent him that article. I was like, "Judd, you know, you introduced me the first time I was on stage." Wow, isn't that weird? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was he doing? I mean, why was he doing it? He got he was doing some national tour. Oh, and he was just, like he's like a stand up doing a college date. Yeah, and he was uh, barely he was probably two years into doing stand up himself. Yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's hilarious. Yeah, that's great. But now, then I had the bug. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Let's get you taken care of. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my loves are growing? Well, so when you get you get done with Amherst, well, what did you study at Amherst anyway? American uh, studies, which is basically history and uh, English. And was that was that going to be end up going into advertising? Was it going to end up being into my mom? God bless her. Uh, it was so important to her that I get a liberal arts education and not worry about. The specificity. Spinning it into yeah. my my job. Yeah. Whatever that was. Um, and I didn't really have a fucking clue. Like, yeah. I, I thought I was going to go into advertising or something to do with investment banking. I took Econ 101, like, my freshman year. I was like, holy shit. Just like soccer. I was like, this is fucking not for me. And I'm yeah, a yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, all these. I thought I was good at – like, I was – one of the best guys in calculus in my school. And then I get there and I'm like, oh my God, I am so dumb compared to the rest of the people in this I class. Yeah, no, I I stopped taking, I think the last math class I had was sophomore year of high school. And then I just took, I knew I could get away with just doing science. Like I could understand science, mm-hmm. but math, fuck it. Numbers, no, thank you. I do not, they do not agree with me, so. It's weird when you, you, you're you're good at a skill or interested in a skill up to a because le- I feel like I've told this 
I've mentioned this twice or three times now. Like I enjoy the skill and then I'm all of a sudden realize, oh, I'm not as good at the skill as I thought I was. And then it's time to move on to a new skill. Right, right. But isn't that kind of what life is, I guess? A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, but it is a personality type too. I mean, there is certainly like, there are people who are okay being okay at something. And then there are other people that sort of insist on being really good at the things that they're going to do. And I think I'm kind of that way. Like, I don't like, I don't enjoy doing shit that I'm just okay at, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I play golf. And mm-hmm. like, I definitely had to get to a point where I was better than, like, I'm not great at golf and I can whatever, but it's like, when I sucked at it, it really bugged the shit out of mm-hmm. me that I sucked at it. And I didn't just quit, which is unusual, because that's like me and playing a musical instrument has mm-hmm. always been, this is frustrating, somewhere between the brain and the hands. I can't get the guitar to do it. Fuck it. Yeah. I quit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's a definitely a, a personality That's weird you say that, because Judd, and that's bringing two thoughts together, but Judd, Judd's the one who made me learn how to play guitar. Oh, really? For Walk Hard. And uh, it's something that my mom had also made me do, and I had hated it because of that. I rejected it because it was this thing I had to do every Wednesday, and then I had to practice my scales. And I grew up hating... I didn't hate guitar music, but I'd hated the whole process of learning to play guitar. to play it, But when it was for a movie... And, J- and Jake Kaz and, J- and Judd are saying, you have to do it. It's like, you have to do it. And yeah. once I had to do it, I was like, oh, I'm so glad they made me do this skill. Yeah, yeah. Forced me past the point where I normally would have quit. Yeah. Well, you're getting paid. Yeah. Getting paid to do something is always a good incentive to Humiliation, learn. I'll tell you, though, humiliation was the driving force. I think- I think uh, To not be humiliated on set when you yes, had to play. Yes. Yeah. I did, and with all- how big a movie and how how many pros were around. I did not want to be the guy everyone was staring at. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing with your fingers? You look like a spaz. Cut. <laughs> and then when you finally see the movie, it's like 100 yards away. You barely see my fingers. Right, it's right. like, you motherfuckers. <laughs> what, now, how, what makes you go from Massachusetts to Chicago, and how soon was that? Well, first I went to Boulder just randomly because a friend was there and I started doing stand-up there in Denver. For how long? For just three months. Oh, okay. Just a summer. And then I went to Chicago basically based on, do you remember how many stand-up clubs were in Chicago in 1989 and 90? It was Chicago and Boston. It's crazy. Chicago and Boston. Guys, there was was like 12 clubs. I'm talking just in the city proper. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. And and it was- at the beginning of the Conan show, it was Chicago and Boston. The writers and, you know, it was Chicago guys and Boston guys. And it really just seemed to be like, and the Boston guys were mostly stand-ups and the Chicago guys were mostly improv, you know, kind of mm-hmm. improv guys. So I think, you know, that was like a, but yeah, those those were the centers at that time of comedy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How's, how's your family feel about, I'm moving to Chicago to do stand-up comedy? They were good that way, especially from where I came from. Of because I'd say most young adults my age were moseying into their first job. Yeah, like like that whole year because this is like thing less than a even, year after you graduate from college. Yeah? Oh, it's immediate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so my parents were good with go find yourself a little bit. Yeah. Not to mention my dad 
He'd been in the Navy and he'd done his service on a Treasure Island in San Francisco. Do you know oh, Treasure yeah, Island? I do, that I weird do. little island. And he was a radar guy when radars were uh, as big as this window right here. Yeah. Anyway, he was a Allen Ginsberg, Ernest Hemingway wannabe. Like yeah. he loved, he grew up in that whole beat scene when yeah. he was in his 20s. Um, so I, I relate, I think it's in my genes a little bit yeah. to, uh, he instilled some of that, even though he was an investment banker, he loved art and he loved writing. And and I think he always like he, I, after he died, I found these, uh, uh, short story submissions he did to the New Yorker magazine that got rejected. So I saw that he had a dream you yeah, know, in his twenties yeah. too. Yeah. And that's why I was saying earlier, we were so fortunate in to be in Chicago at that time when it was, it was so, that that scene was so small and vital and easy to nav, easier to navigate since it was so small. And I just feel lucky. Maybe I wouldn't have met Dell if there had been 500 people instead of 100. Yeah, or, yeah. or met you. Yeah. And the people uh, I ended up I also think with. too, like there wasn't, I mean, I think I've mentioned this on this thing before that, you know, my first improv class was just because I was working in film production and I knew I kind of wanted to write, kind of wanted to act, but it kind of was like I couldn't sit down and write because of my fucking attention issues. And acting, I was like, eh, I've been, I've taken some acting classes and they just seem so artsy, fartsy, yeah, bullshit. And like, why are we doing this? And, so improv, a friend of mine started doing, uh, Betty Cahill, Elizabeth Cahill started to do improv mm. classes at Improv Olympic and sounded good. And I had actually, I had one to, at one point, because I heard, I'd started hearing about improv and it sounded like something that would be good for me. Mm-hmm. And I'd started acting in a lot of student films. Um, and I actually looked up Second City in the White Pages and called at one point when I was working in film production to say, like, how does it work? What is it? What do you do? And they told me, like, and I was like, okay. And then it's so funny. And it sounded so, but it sounded so complicated and expensive and stuff. And Improv Olympic was just easy. And, and I already had a friend doing it. So I went. And actually, when I started there, too, Tommy Blatcher, who was my roommate at the time, who ended up being a, a Conan writer and is, was a creator of uh, Death Clock Metalocalypse and still does a lot, you know, still working uh, in lots of really funny, weird animated shows. He came and he tagged along with me to the first improv class. And actually Kate Flannery was in that first class too. Ah. It was all of our first thing. But a couple weeks in, I realized there's I'm sitting next to this kid who's come, moved here from Denver because he wants to be on SNL. Mm. Like, so he came to Chicago to take improv class. And th- these are like things I was doing on a lark. So it was very weird to I me. I wonder who that, that was- person was, because that's exactly where I was coming from, almost at that same time. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Did I say, I, I can't remember. Yeah. I, 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 but you couldn't believe that like. I was like, yeah, huh. I was like, oh, this was just, uh, like I say, this is just like. And even when I was doing it, like I remember there were different, there were different groups that we had. Like we had a. We were in the, a group of us from the Improv Olympic had been, we were established in the Improv Olympic and uh, the Improv Olympic at that time was in the basement of an Italian restaurant. And a couple of the guys in the group befriended these owners, these two brothers that owned the restaurant. They got Sharna kicked out 
and then we took over the space. Coup d'état. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was quite the quite the quite the coup. And we were called the Comedy Underground. Yeah, and we and it, and it was really great. It was like it was a great. Group. But do you know how much that moved helped me? I dare say my career, but my con- my comedy evolution. Like that was one of my first opportunities, right? Because you guys, it was like ten people. The best. Ten people from the, the funniest. The top people. of the group left. Yeah. And all of a sudden, uh, Sharn in Provolimp was like, what the fuck? Yeah. I don't, all my best guys just left. And then we were there. There we were, those little wet rats. Yeah, ready yeah. Ready to prove ourselves. So that was a huge opportunity for yeah. us. But wait, but within that, even within doing that, I remember at a certain point, a couple of the guys in the group were much more career-oriented. Held a meeting we sat around outside the, the Italian restaurant and they said, these two guys are like, look, we said we'd give this thing, I don't know whether it was six months. Yeah. And if we didn't have jobs and if we didn't have agents and if we weren't getting casting people in here to a fucking basement of an Italian restaurant in <laughs> Chicago, <laughs> that we decided we weren't going to do it. We weren't going to do it. And uh, and we all went around the group. They're all said, you know, talk about yes and. We went around, went around the group, and all these people are like, yeah, well, okay, I guess if that's how everyone feels. And it got to me, and I said, I don't have anything else to do. Right. Like, what, what are we going to do in six yeah, months? What the fuck? I was then like, so if, if, we, if we end this, what am I going to, you know, uh, next Saturday or next, you know, Wednesday through Saturday, I'm going to sit around on my fucking ass. Like, no, we're still having fun. We're doing shows. What do we care? Like about this. And then it went back around the group to like, oh yeah, I think that, yeah, that sounds good. If that's what, if we, yeah, if you're into it, I'd, I'd still like to do shows. And like the two guys at, that were really the ones that were like, we got to end this thing were you know, like, like really upset that we all said like, no, no, we want to continue doing this. And why would it matter to them? Anyway? I, don't, I don't know. It was manic. It was crazy. And when one of them, when I said like, look, we're having fun. And, and, and he actually said to be like, yeah, enjoy your time in dreamland. And I was like, well, it's a fucking improv group in a basement of an Italian restaurant. Like, Wait, what are you talking? Like the stakes, like sounds like you're singing a Billy Joel song. Oh my god! And then, but then the two guys that sort of ran the thing ended up getting us kicked out anyway. So they, you know, it was like one of my first experiences of of somebody with some power saying no, and you going like, no, nah, I think yes, and they go, no, 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 and then everyone around goes, well, how about yes? And then the person with power eventually tells the brothers that run the Italian restaurant kick kick them out. And then they took over the space, oh. and we went and, and we went and started another group. Uh, Gabrus a, King of Beer, Gambrinus King Gambrinus. of Beer, terribly named group, but it was because we picked the name at a at a German place, and on the wall there was a poster of Gambrinus King of Beer, <laughs> who was apparently some German king who passed the first beer purity law, and like. 1200 or something and that became and i was like no guys they were also drunk and that became the name that we picked <laughs> so a lot of beer on stage there was a days. lot of beer yeah but um but yeah that it to me i was at that time too to me was like struck by we're just doing it to do it you know like i don't know were, were you thinking like 
I got it. I'm well, going to be on TV or, you know, well, it just yeah, like- but not SNL. I very much had the goal of let's us be a kids in the hall. Like, yeah. We were, cause we had the, we haven't really talked about the UCB because this is all well, improv. Let's, let's, but, but this, that was what, the family when, I was talking you, about there. I yeah, mean, that yeah. was the, uh, that was improv Olympic. We never even really did the UCB at the improv Olympic. Yeah. Uh, but the whole time I was like, I want to be kids in the hall. I love those guys. And uh, and they did it. Why can't we do it? Yeah. So that's what we said. And yeah. that's why we started doing shows. But How does UCB start? And it used to be this Ad- place. Adam's in it, right? Adam McKay's in it. Ian Roberts, Amy. They're, they're used, mm, well, Amy's not as old as us, but oh. we, we you, you remember the Roxy. There was this yeah. place uh, that had a great open mic. I'd say probably Conan started there and Bob Odenkirk yep. and a lot of people started yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Andy Dick and Dino. There's a lot of people. Dino Stamatopoulos, yeah. Once again, it's like looking back on that room where I just named what could have been the lineup on an open mic, mm-hmm. you know? And now look at all those yeah. people, you know, and t- to think. But anyway, I was doing bits there, and it was like you just see people with a similar sense of humor. McKay's like – that's funny. Can me and Horatio do something with you guys next week? It was me and Walsh. And, yeah. And then you see Ian improvise. He's like, hey, you want to do something with us? So it was like that at first. And then we did this show called Virtual Reality, which at that point, no one even knew what virtual reality was. It was like this cyberpunk kind of concept. Mm-hmm. But we did this whole virtual reality show, and it got good reviews. And uh, it, people, it actually brought people to the show, and it gave us confidence of, hey, maybe this thing will work. But – in short, that's how it started. Was yeah. just one show that actually worked. Because in Chicago, it's like there's so many different shows to get more than twenty people in the audience. If you achieve that, you're like, oh, I got something going here. Yeah, yeah. Because you're also too. You have to go out and stand on the fucking street in front of the L stop and hand out two for one drink tickets to try and get people to come to these shows. I mean, there's that's like a whole added extra side to doing these fun shows in places Mm -hmm. is, is that it's, it's tough to get people to go there and see it, you know? And, uh, I mean, I remember. How do you overcome inertia? Yeah. No one knowing who you are. Well, we would, we had a rule too there at the comedy underground, like there couldn't be less people in the audience than there was on stage. (laughs) And there was a couple of times where we had to not do a show because there were fewer people in the audience than there were on stage. And that was just, no, you can't do that. So, uh, what happens when you uh, walk half the audience, and then in the middle of the show, there's less audience than people on stage? <laughs> <laughs> I've done I, that. Think, I think once you commit to start, you got to <laughs> start. Now, you guys. So, did you then? Was it pretty much at the Roxy? Did you had different look? Because I remember I, I had le- I had left town at that point. I was in New York doing a show. And you guys did some show where, and I remember it like involving walking the audience around. Yeah, and, yeah. And was that was that was, that was like one of the we first. Ne- we upright we rarely for did shows, the right? same venue twice. Yeah, and we shut down a few venues too. In we what did, sense? First venue we were to Cabaret Voltaire. Yeah. We got kicked out for putting our beer in their lettuce crisper and giving the audience uh, alcohol. <laughs> Good punch. <laughs> Distributing it. <laughs> Okay. So Second you're, place. You're, you're, you know, you're prejudiced against their prejudicing its hospitality. I mean, come on. Some of the things we did were like, what are we doing? 
There was this place called Kill the Poets. Do you remember that? I remember the name, yeah. Uh, that a, place closed. A very, very funny name. We're like That name says comedy. That Kill name is poets. like, are you just trying to get people not to come to your place? <laughs> <laughs> then there's a place called Rudely Elegant. That's where we did virtual reality. See, that just sounds like a furniture store. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that was on uh, like North and Milwaukee, I think. Yeah. And then uh, the one you're talking about, we called the virtual tour, where we would we had a map, and I th- it started downtown. We'd walk down, uh, what's it called, the Miracle Mile? Yeah. Um, and at certain stops, we would, it'd be like, I think there's like a church down there, and it'd be like, we'd do a church scene, and uh-huh. then we'd walk in front of a uh you know, a jewelry store and do a jewelry store scene or whatever. We On incor- the sidewalk we, in front of the place. Yeah, yeah. we incorporate the world into uh, the scene. And and are they improvised? Or are they written? Or are they sort of loosely written? I think it was loosely written. Yeah. Yeah, that that imp- that show in particular. The, yeah. The point of that show was, wouldn't it be cool to walk around with an audience yeah. and do scenes? Yeah, yeah. And it actually... It got people. I'm I'm almost sort of amazed in retrospects. I know how hard it is to get an audience in LA and New York. It's like, wow, in Chicago, we were unknown and we had people walking around with us, yeah, like yeah. 30 people. How did yeah. we get them to do that? Now, how does that happen? And, and it, at that point, it, this is you and Walsh and Horatio and Ian and Adam McKay. Mm, Walsh went in and out. Yeah, Ian was in every show. McKay was in every early show. Horatio was in and out because Horatio got on a uh, second city and then yeah. Walsh was doing a lot of annoying stuff in second city. Uh, and then Amy came to town at some point, you know, and she was the freshman and we'd always needed a little, uh, female influence in the group. We'd asked every group did. <laughs> it was such a yeah. white boy game at that point. Yeah. Yeah. There just weren't, many women period. Um, but anyway, she, when she joined us and about that time she joined us, McKay got SNL and that kind of gelled the final four and, and Horatio got SNL. So he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. And the final four of like, let's go to New York and make this TV show. That's how that kind of, did you sell the TV show before you came to New York or did y'all decide to come to New York? We started doing back then. Maybe it's still this way, but uh, showcasing was so important. And it really was like waiting for Guffman. It was like, is Guffman going to be in the audience? And if it was in Chicago, Guffman was rarely there. So you had to go to LA or yeah. New York. So we would do these showcases in New York where you'd get a lot of industry there. It was really intimidating. Yeah. And then the, the Aspen Comedy Festival was around back then too. Yep. And they really did scout the whole comedy world. And you, they really did get the cream of the crop. And then you get there and it was highly competitive. And we did really well there. And then Comedy Central pretty much, based on our performance there, bought us. And that was soon after we moved to New York. Oh, it was it was after. you know, guys. Yeah, because I remember you guys came to New York. I had been in New York. I had been in L.A. And then I was back in New York. And the Conan show, I think, was just starting mm-hmm. at that point. And or it had been on for maybe a year, and I remember I think your first show was in a basement somewhere down. Yeah, Tribeca Lab. Yeah, it was like in a basement, and I remember seeing. And I had because I had missed out on this that that particular evolution. Right. Like I say, I had just heard about these shows that you guys were doing, right. and 
so it was re- I was re- it was really fantastic, you know, and different, really truly different than a lot of stuff that was happening on stage in comedy. And also there's just the four of you are just brilliant brilliant people, amazing Thank performers. You, and we at the Conan show immediately took advantage of that to bring you guys in and I and it was me and yeah. I think maybe I don't know if Stack was there at the time but it was me definitely saying and I didn't know Amy and I didn't know Ian really because mm-hmm. they were sort of the newcomers after I'd left but I was like I got funny people here because mm-hmm. one thing that fucking blew my mind I got hired on the Kona show and I I didn't know anything and mm-hmm. I didn't and all of a sudden I'm like and and I was improv so now I'm writing sketches for a, you know for the show that's replacing David Letterman mm-hmm. totally fucking daunting you have to just kind of like okay I'm doing this and I'd write sketches they would bring in and I would think okay this is New York City well, I'm going to see some talented mm-hmm. fucking people Unfunny motherfuckers, mm-hmm. one after the other, and just be like, "Look, I'll just get Dino to do it." You know, we ended up just having the writers do these bits because but we there get- was a logic to it, and it's why our theater succeeded there. There was no improv there at all. Yep, uh, but the, I, the no, improv but- that was there was like literally twenty years behind. Yeah, um, to do comedy, you had to be pretty much established stand-up to get into a legitimate, on a legitimate stage. Otherwise, yeah. you're in, just doing a bar open mic. No places to do sketch unless you're going to rent the space for 300 to $500 a night. Yeah. So there was nowhere for that talent to find itself. Yeah, to like foster in itself. Yeah. No, we were just getting people that, like, you know, equity actors that come in that – like, you know, because they had been in Kiss Me Kate, they said they could, you know, do <laughs> comedy. And then you guys came and I was like, okay, we got to bring these in. And everybody on the show immediately, all the writers on the show realized, okay, I wrote a bit. It is this amount of funny. And we can hire any one of these four guys. It'll be guys in, I include Amy as a guy. Yeah. Because guys, Y'all. it's a gender thing. Yeah. Or it's a gender neutral thing for me. Um and you'll add percentage to the top of being funny. You know, like you bring in you, you bring in Amy, bring in Walsh. And the, the bit that you've written is made funnier as opposed to hoping that the the person that you hire will at least wring the amount of funny that's just there on the page out of it. And it was, I think it was a huge change for us. And then as you guys, at what point did you start, did you start teaching classes right away? Yeah, because then we started asked like Sus do an ass cat that we did just for fun. Another like, long form improv show. Yeah, and they were like, "How do you do that?" Just like I had asked at one point. Yeah, how do you do that? Uh, so then, and we had no jobs. I was about to say to you that without getting those jobs from you guys and our teaching work, I would have had to get. I know I'd have to go back to. Waiting tables or being a substitute teachers. I didn't have to do that. Thank God. Hey, man, I did I that know, all through my 20s. Believe me, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, so, anyway, that, it was good to have those kind of jobs in New York. Yeah. Rather than have to uh, scour for uh, jobs I enjoyed less. Well, then, you, and you guys started taking these classes, and then that opened up to 
all of a sudden there were people that you were taking classes with you guys that then we could use on people like Andy Daly yeah. and uh, Rob Riggle and Rob Cordry and uh, there are other Robs. Yeah, all the Robs and uh, thousands of Robs. We brought to you, <laughs> but it was. I mean, it was really. It was. Uh, it was fantastic for us because all of a sudden it's like you guys somehow like sent out a signal, like a bat signal to people that were going to be funny in that particular yeah, way. I, I'd rather credit Dell here, but he, he, cause that's the same epiphany I had with his, like, and you were talking about acting classes earlier and how boring they were. And when I would this take- is Del, Again, this is Del Close, who's like the improv guru of- I had taken all those acting classes too and been so not inspired by them. Yeah. It felt like either I'm not getting this or yeah. I, I'm not a good actor. It made self-doubt and the- the techniques and methods never made sense to me. And all of a sudden I got in a class, this guy, Dell, and he started talking about, however he talked about finding the game, just talked about how comedy works, how comedy can come from real life. And all of a sudden I was like, holy shit, this makes sense to me. Yeah. It's clicking. He's not making me funny at all. Yeah. But he's giving me a method of working with other people and us all raising our, our our level of comedy. Yeah. And all those people you just named, the same thing. They all existed out in New York, and they were all funny. They didn't have any place to do it together, right. a system to do it right, with right. each other. So, uh, yeah, I, I completely Dell changed my life in that way. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Can't you tell my love's a growing? Now... When you say self-doubt, I mean, at, in that orig- in that early part, is it just, is there so much stuff building that you, you know, that it, that self-doubt doesn't creep into it, that you feel like, okay, we're going to start this school and we're going to, because I mean, you guys, and I've, I've said this before, you know, you guys have created one of the most vital performing we education had, we institutions. Had no, we had zero goal to, as you know. We yeah. didn't come to New York for a goal of opening a theater or yeah. even a school. It just all came organically. So I guess there's no doubt when every move you make is being forced upon you, even for better and for worse, even up to this year, that's been a nightmare for me. It, like everything that happened to us was like, wow, we sure spent a lot of money renting class space. It'd be better if we got this space for a month instead of 
every three days, oh, wow, we spent a lot of money renting it for a month. It'd be better if it was just ours. Yeah. Like, we're we're every show in this guy's theater right now, the Soul Arts Project. Yeah, that? yeah. And it's like, uh, look, all this money we're spending. We're being stupid. If we just, we could rent it from this much less across this, you know, that's how every decision happened. Yeah. Oh, we got closed down. When you sign a lease for a thing, how do you, I mean. I wish it, (laughs) my lesson of this year is I wish I had felt the fear I should feel, I should feel with leases. Yeah, yeah. But that time, oh my God, Andy, all the stuff we did in that first theater and how much a fire trap it was. And so many theaters in New York are. Yeah. They don't, there's no alleys in New York, folks. Yeah, yeah. How do you get out the back? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You could say that of a ton of th- small theaters in New York. Yeah. And, uh, and then all of a sudden the fire department shuts you down, and then you're like going, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This- the landlord told us they get out the, the landlord told us they get out by getting on the next building's roof, and this is how you do it. And the firemen come in and go, what? That's not a plan. <laughs> Escaping to another roof, you yep. guys can't do a theater here anymore. So then we had to get a bigger theater. So you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, like yeah. it didn't come from. Hey, it's just necessity. Let's go yeah. get a bigger theater. It came from you guys. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. Now we got to make a new decision. Yeah. And all of us wanted to be and remain wanting to be comedians. We don't want to be theater owners. Yeah. We didn't have that goal. Uh, so everything that's happened to us, for better and for worse, is like. Someone working for us telling us, hey, it's gotten to this point. Do you guys want to do this? Mm-hmm. Uh, yes or no? Yeah. It's usually yes. It's like, okay, that's what you guys think. We'll do it. Yeah. Like you said, wasn't it intimidating to sign those leases? It wasn't. And then all of a sudden that caught up with us of like, wow, we should have been looking at these leases in New York harder. Yeah. Because, yeah, they are scary. Well, now you you have a special coming out, right? Yes. It's called Pot Humor. It's an amalgamation of all these 420 shows I've done at our theater through the years and festivals I do. I got a ton of weed humor. Um, <laughs> but uh, You're the I, Cheech and Chong. Yeah, baby. I, I went up to Portland. There's this Northwest Cannabis Club. It's one of the very few places you can actually get high and watch a show. Yeah. And this whole audience just baked out. Right. And they were so high. I do a lot of interactive stuff at the beginning of the show where they could barely. Like, I've done this a lot with interacting with audiences and talking to them in this 420 show. This is the first time that they're literally baking during the show. These guys could barely talk. It was oh, wow. almost funny just for that reason. I have my wife there in the audience. <clears throat> uh, Who does whole- not smoke weed does she mm, on occasion but not yeah, much yeah. but uh not all the shows about weed and I, I get into this riff about uh eat, eating pussy and i'm like <laughs> you can't you know i used to be able to say that in front of i would say it in front of my wife in the middle of the day but now we have a, a kid and i can't say that anymore so i'm going to this riff about you have to talk in code and i talk to the audience like what code would you use to say it and and then I go to my wife and I'm like, well, does any of that work for you? And everyone didn't know she's there up until that moment. Yeah, and yeah. they're all freely just saying, eating at the bakery or whatever. And it's like, right. let's ask her. And everyone went, ooh, <laughs> she's actually here. Yeah, the woman yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> That's the pussy being eaten. Yeah, yeah. It's become real. It's not abstract anymore. 
I'm not sure if I've ever seen a stand-up go, and this is my family I've been talking about the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know it's, yeah, because it's very fucking uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing stand-ups who do bits about their family, it makes my fucking skin (laughs) crawl sometimes. It's ridiculous. There's this guy. Please watch it, folks. Uh, You can get on Amazon or Xbox, all those VOD VOD places, Apple TV. But uh, when you do watch the scene with my wife, there's this guy sitting next to her whose eyes are closed. And when I start doing the bit that night with her, and, you know, I know it's all being filmed, I'm like, oh, my God, this dude is sleeping right next to my wife, and how am I going to edit him out? Yeah, yeah. But then, as the bit goes on, I see he's not sleeping. He's so high, his eyes are closed, and he's kind of grooving, you know, like when you groove to a jam at a concert, and you kind of just close your eyes. Yeah, yeah. And he was grooving to my comedy. comedy. Dude! You gotta see it. And he does groove to it. I'm not even making up, because you can see it. He's like... Rocking back and forth <laughs> in his seat. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, this oh, is what I wanted, man. man. An audience that gets so high, they, they find the rhythm of my joke. They can't look at me. <laughs> oh man. Well, now, I mean, UCB is now such a such a big, and like I said, the most. I think one, you know, one of the most vital performing educational institutes in the country now uh you know you've got you know well i mean there's been some growth issues you know you've had you were on both coasts and you had to didn't you have to close one of those theaters on the well when you brought up leases like yeah had a lease that was a son of a bitch in the in the east village that the reality of it hit us suddenly and it was like oh this thing that i signed yeah it made me Stop signing things like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a big life lesson of like, wow, you trust people and people say it's this way. And then you realize, oh, it wasn't that way at all. And uh-huh. this is a bitch. Is it like continuing pretty well? I know there's been like lots of controversy. Yeah, the- even even that venue that closed, we found a new, better venue, at, at least the way the stage is uh, and locations called subculture New Yorkers check it out our new second venue and we're still in hell's kitchen yeah uh, in New York but yeah we've gotten back on our feet but this has been a year of me being involved in the theater way more than I want to Uh, I do just want to be a comedian and do my pot humor special and talk about that yeah (laughs) yeah I don't enjoy all the bummer parts of running the theater at yeah. all. Well, but I mean, all four of you have going careers that don't allow you to just like run the theater. So no. it's kind of a And from the beginning we've always said that. It was like we did not get into this. So we are hiring people to run this theater. To run the it. theater, yeah. But now how do you supervise how do you supervise like just the the basic ethos of what's going on there that you, you still agree with it, or does it just, I the mean, you check in with is shows. The, is the one thing I think I've, I have always kept my, my foot in the, in the river on. Um, Cause I didn't want whatever the types of shows we wouldn't have, or even stuff like stupid shit, like pre-show music. Like yeah. it bugs me when we play mainstream music, when it's like, I want the music to be like the comedy we're putting up. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. And, uh, but I, I was never into 
monitoring the business side. None of us wanted to do that. Yeah. But, but when you say ethos, that's more like the philosophy behind the, the school and the performance, I'd say. So yeah. I've always been interested in that and kind of fascinated by it in a way. I right. guess I'm interested in comedy that way. Well, how do I mean, how do you guys handle, though, having to make sure that it's that the business is the business and that the money is, it you know. It sucks, man. I don't handle it. This year's been awful. Yeah. I'm not handling it well at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I've, I've handled it as well. I should say I've handled it as well as I could. But it's like it's like the death of a parent. It's like you don't want to have – it's awful. And then you you don't want to have to deal with it, but you you have to, and it changes your life, and you have no choice. Yeah. Versus having a job that you can walk away from that you don't like or something like that. Right. Like you, there's certain things in life you can't walk away from. Mm-hmm. And this was one of them. Yeah. And uh, it's been a it's been a bummer of a year that way. Yeah. But it's been positive in that the our staff is so great and we have turned ourselves around. Yeah. And ongoing, is there you – know, I mean, do you ha- is it just kind of keep it going the way it is? Are there any more growth plans for the theater or – uh, or are you just, I mean, I, I'll be honest, this year has been about simplifying it more than, than growing in that we feel that we're the best comedy school and the best comedy theater. And we were doing stuff like, uh, worrying about making branded content videos. Like yeah. we, we were in, you know, everyone was into that game. Yeah. Yeah. And the bottom I was, fell. I was, I was in one of them or, you know. The Christmas, oh, oh yeah. the CISO yeah, thing yeah, in particular, yeah. 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 Well, I'd like to still be in that kind of bigger game, but we were in the smaller, like, just making whatever ads for a company, just like yeah. everybody Oh, was. I see The funnier yeah, guy yeah. kind of model. And then that market kind of just dropped out for everyone, and we had put too much into that. And then, and we felt like, why were we – that wasn't us. Yeah. Like, let's get back to the school and the theater. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess the growth comes in uh, making opportunities for education to the rest of the country. Like we're, we have an online sketch class we just started. Oh, we, cool. We do uh, one-on-one tutoring with uh, sitcom scripts that you can do in the middle of the country, stuff like that, our improv manual, stuff like that. So that's where we see the growth. Right now we're doing an audio book that you can hear anywhere in the world versus just the United States where our book is only available now. So I guess that's where the growth is, is with the education. Mm -hmm. Now for you personally, when you, you know, like ongoing, like you said, you just want to be a comedian, but you kind of have this business you're running. I mean, yeah. I I even hate answering questions about UCB. Like I, I like, like it gives me, well then you shouldn't have started a school asshole. But that was the thing, and I, would try, I didn't start a school. I tried to save money by not spending as much on class space I was renting. That's the you way we started at a it. school. You started the best comedy school in the country, asshole. You have to fucking follow it now. But I don't. I want to be. If you're asking what I want to do, yeah, moving forward, yeah, I like doing comedy experiments, like what you're doing with me later this week. Yeah. Uh, like I've invited you to do so many times, and I thank you for doing through the years. Like I like doing shit like that. I like trying something going, I've never done a musical before. I'm going to try that. I've never done a movie before. I'll try that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever it is. I like doing that, I like challenging myself that way. 
Yeah. You're not always giving every opportunity you want and that's showbiz, but, uh, that's what I want. Yeah. And, uh, what's great about this world we're sitting in right now, the podcast world you greeted at the beginning of the show is we are in an affordable world where I can do experiments and I don't have to wait for Ted Harbor at NBC yeah. to approve which my you've ideas. been doing improv uh, you've been doing an improv podcast and for many many hours of improv comedy yeah yeah improv for humans improv for humans yeah so uh yeah I'm glad about that because back when we started once again before the internet just to think that the only way I can be seen is to get on that stage tonight yeah and now there's other ways. So yeah. you, you can create your own uh, reality, your own career to a degree. You still have to find fans and stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's so, where I'm at. Yeah. And now, okay, and, and going into the what have you learned part of these three mm -hmm, questions, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure that you get lots of, I mean, I get people sending me, I'm a comedy writer. I'm an aspiring comedy writer in Lincoln, Nebraska. What do I do? You know, I mean, and I don't necessarily mean like the advice aspect, but I mean, what what's the point of what you've been doing? I mean, what where do you come out at the end of this very, very amazingly diverse experience and career? Yeah, it's like when you're talking about what do you learn? Because um, we have been talking about comedy, but... Uh, it could be about life too. <clears throat> I, I was going to say you're just so notoriously I, private. I wanted, I didn't want to tell people about. It. Well, both my parents are dead, and yeah. uh, they both passed on too early, and it was in recent years, relatively. And there's no doubt they both, for different reasons, and the, what happened afterwards to to me, that's what changed my life. Like having just big picture lessons. Like one lesson I learned in life was uh, you never know what's going on with people. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to give an example. Here's one that, that connects the two worlds. Uh, my mom committed suicide. So uh, that that's a topic I didn't even think of before uh, she did. And yeah. I wouldn't care. It, it was because it wasn't in my life. And that's the way most people move through life. If something isn't affecting your life, you're not thinking about it too much. Mm -hmm. And you probably just don't really care in a true empathetic way. Uh, and especially we're going back to the 20 year olds who are like in comedy and you just, I'll fucking say anything. I'm just going to, I just want to be funny. I'll be outrageous. I'll, I'll make fun of anything and everything and go anywhere with my comedy because I just do not give a fuck. And I think at some point, as you start to mature as a comedian, you find an, you, you find an empathy where you have to realize my audience isn't me. And I can I, and I can affect the way they feel beyond comedy. I can make them sad and by offending them or uh, or making them feel uh, less than about themselves. Maybe a better way to put it than being offended. yeah alienated because you're just you're you're not thinking about their needs. You're only thinking about your needs. Right. So after my mom committed suicide, all of a sudden everything on stage was suicide. I started noticing and people making fun of it. And being glib about it and cavalier and 
it being in comedy. It's like it's like when you learn a word that you hadn't. Yes. And then all of a sudden you start seeing it everywhere. And you're yeah. like, well, haven't I noticed this word before? Yeah. It was the same thing with suicide. And I was like, but then that opened me up to like other things that maybe didn't affect me. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you got to start thinking about that. Yeah. That you don't know what's going on with people. And that can apply to an audience or that can apply to someone you're working with who seems really dark for six months. And you're like, I think I used to would either write them off or go, what an asshole. Whereas now it's like, I don't know. Who knows what they're going through? Because I know Mm -hmm. people didn't know what I was going through and how it affected me. So I try to be empathetic to that. Yeah. Uh, And then that can go into comedy too. Like, I don't know who's in the audience, what they've been through. I really got to know that whatever I'm going to say, I would be comfortable with the whatever topic I'm talking about, whatever type of person I'm talking about, life experience, if a person that has that life experience or is that type of person in the audience, I should be comfortable saying this bit in front of them without feeling uh, bad that I might be offending them. Yeah. So uh, that doesn't mean no jokes about suicide, but it's like realize some people in the audience might either be contemplating suicide or know someone who had it or – so just be careful. Yeah. Um, but that applies to everything. Well, so. that's that's why I think, the, you know, this controversy about PC culture killing comedy and mm-hmm. that comedy is supposed to be free and not have any concerns about offending people. That's just – you're talking about a grown-up attitude. And you're saying, like, yeah, sure, say whatever you want, but you got to – you got to accept the consequences. You got to accept the responsibility of what you're saying. And I think that this notion that comic, comics should say whatever the fuck they want, a it's usually a it's usually a, a cover for being not particularly original and just being boring mm-hmm. and saying offensive shit because you think you know just stupid bro humor. But it also too is a very unevolved, very immature way of communicating. And a well, very, you that, know that. I, I I'm right in the middle of this of when I read all these opinions on this. Yeah, stuff no, because I know. I don't like to censor people either. I, me neither. And uh, but I I and that's why I don't like to say certain topics are off are off limits. I don't like to say certain words are off limits. It's all about context, and that's why I feel like that test I'm saying is, you want to do that crazy Asian accent? Would you do that in the face of an Asian person? Mm-hmm. If you would, then that means. You're either a sociopath and you hate Asian people, yeah, or you feel that your joke is crafted in a way that it isn't offensive to them, yeah, and that they should realize that. Yeah, that's the way I'm putting it. Yeah. It's like, and I could go back through my own material and take out a lot and go, mm, I don't know if I would say yeah, that in front yeah, of that of person. Course. And so that that's that's me tying real life to comedy, I guess, in a lesson, yeah. but. Yeah. uh I don't know. I'm still learning. How many lessons do you learn that you don't follow, though? Right. <laughs> no, I, I got know. a few of those. Or in that my you pocket. forget. Or that you forget too. Like I'll be, I constantly be like, oh yeah, right. I remembered that thing, and I learned that thing a while ago, and I was just fucking it up over and over, and and now I remember I learned it again. <laughs> All right. Well, we've talked for a long time. But I that's, know we're such old friends. Because I love you. And uh, and this is really fun. And okay, it was, uh, I hope I scored well on the three questions. Please grade me, folks. Did. He, at Matt Besser, send me my score. Yeah. 
you got a uh, seven. I don't know out of what, but you got a seven. Seven. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's it. You people have heard enough. Go outside now, you podcast listeners. Yeah, but watch my special while oh, yeah. you're outside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get a virtual TV. Put your put your VR headset on and go sit in the park and watch pot humor. Uh, all right. Well, thank you, Matt Besser. I love Thanks, you, Andy. And uh, thank you, listeners. I love you too. And really? we will. Uh, yeah. Sure. All I love them. every. Well, there's that one guy, but. We will see you next time, hear you next time, be with you next time on The Three Questions. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco and Earwolf production. It's produced by me, Kevin Bartelt, executive produced by Adam Sachs and Jeff Ross at Team Coco, and Chris Bannon and Colin Anderson at Earwolf. Our supervising producer is Aaron Blair, associate produced by Jen Samples and Galitza Hayek, and engineered by Will Beckton. And if you haven't already, make sure to rate and review The Three Questions with Andy Richter on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Earwolf. Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? Well, working on the go seamlessly requires a strong network like T-Mobile. We have America's largest 5G network, so whether you're on a video call at the park or uploading large files at a coffee shop, we have the 5G speed you need. Whatever takes you on the go, T-Mobile's got you covered. Find out more at T-Mobile.com slash network today. Coverage not available in some areas. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com.